I want to read um, a couple of pieces, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, and then we're going to step into tonight's teaching. It's not a preach, it's, it, it's teaching. It's taking a, a topic and, and thinking about it and working through it and drawing different scriptures into the conversation as they um, are relevant. And, and this teaching, a lot of the material comes from the Freedom in Christ course, as we've been going through, and what we're doing is taking that teaching and then working with it ourselves and making it our own and making it relevant for Orangefield. So that's the journey we're going on. Tonight is entitled, Handling Our Emotions Well. So if you're a Bible follower, as opposed to simply a Bible listener, uh, I want to encourage you to turn to Psalm 137. Listen now for the Word of God. By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, our tormentors demanded songs of Zion. <clears throat> Excuse me. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done for us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. And yes, that is in the Bible. And then turn with me <clears throat> to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and just a couple of verses. That's sort of close to the end of the Bible. Just a couple of verses, reading from verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's pray for a second, and then we'll start. Father, as we come tonight to learn from your words. Father, won't you speak to both our minds and our hearts? Won't you speak to both our intellect and our rational thought and to our motivations and our emotions? Because we are whole beings created by you, redeemed by you. And your love and your truth are the keys to our freedom and our flourishing. 
Holy Spirit, come and rest on every person tonight as you minister to them, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do we have this video? Potentially about to play a video from my favorite film. Here it goes. Joy. This is sadness. That's anger. This is disgust. And that's fear. We're Riley's emotions. watch that all night so I could. Um, do, do you know the movie? Have any of you seen the movie? Some of you have seen the movie, some of you are going, what is that about? It's basically the story of, of this girl called Riley and it's about her journey through childhood into teenage years and the complexity of her emotions as they unfold and the way it's taught to children in the movie. It's such a fun concept to think about 
that inside her head's a control panel that is controlled by these different emotions. And when she's first born, the only emotion she has is joy. And then anger comes along. And then the other emotions start to come along as well. And that journey through childhood is different emotions just controlling and releasing themselves through her personality and her personhood. It's a wonderful concept, really, really interesting concept. And what's really interesting is she becomes a teenager and new emotions come into the mix and emotions start to merge and you know, she finds herself being happy and crying at the same time and being both excited and scared at the same time. And we can relate to that as adults. We, we, we get the complexity of emotions Apparently, according to a couple of different psychology sources, there are 27 different emotions. You can have some primary ones, some secondary ones. Why don't you turn to the people beside you and see if you can, many you can name. Go. Many emotions can you think of? Okay, second question. You probably didn't name all 27 in that amount of time, and I'm not going to tell you all 27. That's what Google's for. Um, can you think of times in the Bible when Jesus expressed or demonstrated some of the emotions that you've been sharing there? Talk, discuss, go. Okay, shout some out to me. Shout some out. Or from this side of the room, shout out, shout out as time, Jesus. Love, yeah, that's, yep, safe one, good one, well done. Give me another one over this side of the room. Anger, Anger. yeah, turned over the tables in the temple, yeah. Sadness. Sadness, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. And, and there's a whole complexity of emotions that, that he feels and he sees as we read the stories. And some of them are named and some of them, as, as you read how he responds to people, you see emotion coming out in the text as well. What's interesting to think of, was Jesus demonstrating that emotion? Because Jesus was fully human and fully God. Was he demonstrating those emotions in his humanity or in his divinity? Interesting. I'm going to run with the Gary Ball School of Wisdom in this one and say yes, both, because as we read the whole story of the Bible, we see that Father God, Yahweh, demonstrates emotions. We see love in God. We see joy in God. We see anger in God. We see jealousy in God. We see so many other emotions. But, but here's the key. This is really important. In 1 John chapter 4, we, we read that God is love. At the very center of his being, he is love. And so all of the other emotions flow from, from who he is at, at the very center. So his love flows from his love, his joy flows from his love, his, his kindness flows from his love. Even his anger flows from his love for humanity. His anger is not against people, but against the sin that people commit, because he loves people. All of God's emotions flow from a heart of love. And if you remember back, if you've been journeying with us and tracking with us through uh, the past few weeks, you'll remember on week one, we talked about us as created beings. We are created in the image of God, and that means a whole complexity of things. But one of the things it means is that if God has emotions, 
and he's created us in his image, then it's not a surprise that we are emotional beings, that our emotions are things that God has gifted us with. It's like one of our cars this week wouldn't start. It just wouldn't start. Lara came in, she goes, the car's not starting. And I'm like, I can pray for it, but I'm not a mechanic. (laughs) And and praying for it didn't work on this occasion. Um, But what had happened was for the past 1,500 miles, a warning light had come up on the dashboard saying, add blue in 1,500 miles, then add blue in 1,200 miles, and add blue in 1,000 miles, and 800 miles, and 500 miles, and 200 miles, and 100 miles, and 50 miles. In 10 miles, add blue. Nine, eight, seven, six, five. You see where this is going? And when it got to zero, the car wouldn't start. The car wouldn't start. The, the, the light on the dashboard was giving us both an indication that there was something wrong, something, um, I mean, that's something wrong, how did I say that? There, there was a deeper reality going on with the car that we needed to pay attention to a deeper truth going on with the car that we needed to pay attention to. And even though for for all of those previous miles, the car was still working and functioning, there was something under the surface that needed to be just paid attention to, otherwise it was going to lead to a more serious issue. And we, in our neglect, didn't, and said car wouldn't start, but we got it sorted out, it's fine, it's no problem. Sometimes our emotions are a bit like those lights on a car. They can indicate positive things. They can indicate negative things that are going on, deeper realities underneath the surface that need to be paid attention to. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. You see, our emotions are something to be celebrated. And I want to say that really clearly. And and, and some of those things are really good. James tells us in James 1.17, that all good gifts come from God. All good gifts come from the, the Father of lights. They come down from heaven to us. He is the author of all good things. So I was thinking about this and thinking about it in terms of emotions. So when I sit in a coffee shop with a, a really nice cup of coffee and a really good book, I, I, I feel all kinds of emotions, but one of the emotions I feel is this deep, deep sense of peace. I just feel totally chilled, do you know what I mean? In that space, in that moment. And, and part of that comes from a deeper understanding, a deeper reality that God is sovereign and I'm not. And I've got off the hamster wheel for half an hour to have a cup of coffee and read my book. And the church hasn't stopped working and the world hasn't stopped turning. And he's in control and I'm not. I think that's a really healthy emotion, that sense of peace. And you can bring that into all kinds of situations. Another one was just the other week, uh, our oldest daughter, Karis, turned 13, and she had mates over to the house, did an outdoor cinema thing, and it was really fun. And, and we would sort of, she didn't want us to come out because we cramped her style, but we kind of glanced out at her, you know, took sneaky photographs, um, you know, proud parenting thing. And, and, and the joy that she was exhibiting just brought this delight to my heart as dad, this absolute delight to my heart as dad. And the deeper underlying reality reminding me that God is a God who gives good gifts to his kids. And that my family is one of those gifts that he has given us. And I can unpack other emotions like that, positive emotions, brilliant emotions, and you'll have your own emotions. It's interesting to think, okay, when I have a really positive emotion, 
What's the deeper underlying truth that that emotion is reflecting? How does that relate to who God is and what God is doing in my life and my attitude towards God and my understanding of God? But sometimes those dashboard lights, those emotions as they bubble up within us are not indications of good things. Sometimes they can be indications of things that are wrong, like the ad blue, or the car's not gonna work on a cold September morning. Because there was a few cold mornings last week, wasn't there? Yeah? Yeah, you, you can talk, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and, and so what I wanna just press into tonight a little bit is some of those negative emotions and then what they are maybe reflecting under the surface of our lives that needs to be paid attention to. And these two things come straight out of the Freedom in Christ course. Um, so Neil Anderson, Steve Goss, um, these are two of the things that these guys suggest. The first one is faulty life goals. Goals for your life that don't necessarily align with God's purpose for your life. So you think about it, the, the, the zeitgeist, the, the, the God of our age, the matrix for happiness in our age. Let's think about them. Financial security, good thing. Stuff, we, we, we all like stuff, don't we? We like to, to get new trainers or new shoes or a new car or a new, you fill in the gap for whatever your favorite new thing to get is. Oh, and a new bag of coffee he was telling me about this morning. Yeah, you with me? He's nodding. The matrix for happiness, the, the, the zeitgeist of our age, the, the thing that will bring us fulfillment. Maybe it's getting married. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe it's being sexually fulfilled. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe it's to have kids. That's your thing. Maybe it's to be popular either in real life or on social media because they're not actually the same thing even though you think they are. Um, we have this matrix for happiness in our culture today to say these are the things that, that I, I need in my life and then I will be a complete person. And yet, I was thinking about that and thinking, by that matrix, Jesus was a total failure. If those are the things we think will make us complete and happy and fulfilled, by that matrix, Jesus was a total failure. He, he, he didn't have a home, he didn't have a career, he didn't have, uh, have resources. He didn't accumulate stuff. He never got married. He, to the best of our knowledge, he, he never had sex. He didn't have children. There was moments when he was popular, but actually there was moments when he was profoundly unpopular and when he was nailed to a cross at the end of his life, there was only a handful of people who were still with him. By the matrix, our culture says this will make you happy and fulfilled and complete. If we use that same matrix of Jesus, he was a total failure. We all have desires that we believe will lead to our completeness and to our flourishing. But here's a question. What if those desires are not God's purpose for your life? What if God's purpose for your life is not that you go to university at the minute? And so when that hasn't happened, you're left wondering. What if God's purpose for your life is, is that you don't actually get married? Or what if God's purpose for your life is that you don't have children, or at least not yet? What emotions rise up within us whenever those things that we are aiming for and striving for and placing our hope and happiness in do not become a reality? Grief? Anger? Anxiety, sadness, 
And those things are all natural. Those are not bad emotions. Those are good emotions. They, they, they reflect a reality. The problem is if you find yourself dwelling in that emotion, that that light on your dashboard continues to come on and continues to come on and continues to come on. It poses a question. It poses a deeper question right at the, the very center of who you are. And the question is, am I willing to trust God? Am I willing to trust what God's purpose for my life is? Or am I clinging to what my purpose for my life is? And what if those things are different? Peter, one of Jesus' best friends, he, he writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, he says, cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. I want to tell a, a personal story. We talk about misaligned life goals. One of my life goals was to have kids. And particularly one of my life goals was to have a son who would grow up and I could bring him to play rugby and I could watch him play mini rugby and maybe progress through or, or football. I would, I would grieve that a little bit, but I would get over it. It'd be okay. Uh, but do but you know what I mean? And God gave us Archie, who is incredible and wonderful and beautiful and special. But he's not able-bodied in the way that I thought he would be. He's not able to run about with mates. He's not able to play rugby. He's not able to do any of those things. He, he... And that's left me, I'm not going to put words in Lara's mouth, but that's left me as dad with a complexity of emotions of grief and disappointment and anxiety and love and joy all at the same time. And I've had to learn, and sometimes I've learned this better than others, and sometimes I'm still learning this. I, I've had to learn how to bring those complexities of emotions to God and say, God, I trust you with my son and thank you for him and laying down some of my life goals at God's feet and walking the path that he has invited me to walk. And I'm still doing that. I don't want to pretend I've got that perfect because I haven't. First Peter 5, 7, and 8, cast your anxiety on him, on God, because he cares for you. What do I do with my grief and my sadness and my disappointment and my fear? I can linger in it. I can become resentful in it. I can become consumed and destroyed by it. Or I can bring it to God and say, God, I trust you. And it's a choice to make. I trust you. Because what's interesting is that verse in 1 Peter 5, it says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And then it says, be alert and sober of mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The devil, our enemy, is, amongst other things, the author of lies. He wants me to linger in a place of disappointment and anger and fear and resentment. He wants me to blame God. He wants me to be unfulfilled in my life. He wants me to um, 
to look at my son and see what he's not instead of looking at my son and seeing what he is and seeing the gift that God has given me in Archie. He wants me to linger in the lies as opposed to bringing those lies to God, bringing those emotions to God and saying, God, I trust you. I trust you and letting God help me to work through. I wonder tonight, are there emotions that you are experiencing from unfulfilled goals that maybe you need to bring to God? And maybe the thing that you think will bring you that completeness isn't what God has for you but he's got something else for you. Or maybe he's just saying, not yet. But the emotions that you're feeling around it are stopping you experiencing the fullness of who you are in God and what he has for you right now. The second thing that I want to just sort of put out there tonight, lies that past experiences have taught us to believe. Lies that past experiences have taught us to believe. Maybe you were bullied in school. And it left you with a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. Maybe a lot of anger as well. And maybe you never got justice for that. And maybe that's left you feeling that... Um, that the only way to get ahead in life is to be dominant and to be strong and to be hard and almost to adopt the role of a bully yourself an experience and an emotion that birthed a lie that now shapes your reality. Or maybe you were abused as a kid. Or maybe you're being abused now if you are I really want to encourage you to come and speak to some of us, some of our pastoral team or our ministry team. Maybe you were abused and it left you feeling worthless. It left you feeling dirty and you, you, you bought into a lie that actually that's who you are, worthless and dirty and unlovable. And that past experience, those emotions that were birthed in you at that time caused you to start to believe this lie that's shaping your reality today. Maybe you had an absent parent when you were growing up and you've grown up constantly seeking approval because you think you have to try hard to impress people to be approved and get validation. Maybe, maybe you, you were told you were stupid as a kid. We don't, we, you know, out of all the bad words we say to our kids not to use, that's the top of the list. You're stupid. It's just not allowed to be said in our house because the power of that lie spoken over somebody's life can shape their next 30, 40, 50 years. As I was preparing this, as I was praying about this, um, the, the, there was one thing that just felt heavy and, and significant. And, and, and maybe it's for somebody tonight that the idea that... Um, You've heard a parent say, but you're not as smart as your brother or you're not as smart as your sister. And maybe it wasn't said to you. Maybe you were out of the room and you, just, you, you heard it spoken. And that, those words 
have shaped who you are and left you with a feeling of being profoundly insecure. You see, the Bible talks about footholds and strongholds in Ephesians chapter 4, 27. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 4. Do not let this, oh, hold on. Yeah, it is there. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. A foothold is the Greek word topos, which means a place of influence. Sometimes these things happen um, and these emotions rise up in you and a, a lie of the enemy is birthed within you that you allow to linger and it gives the enemy a foothold in your life, a place of influence in your life. And I'm not talking about possession or anything like that there. Don't worry about that. I'm just saying sometimes the lie of the enemy sticks and starts to shape who you are. And then in the text we read tonight, it talks about strongholds of the enemy needing to be taken down by the truth in God's word. You see, sometimes when you give the enemy a foothold, you believe that lie, and then you believe it a second time and a third time and a fourth time. What starts off as a little foothold becomes a brick and another brick and another brick, and what starts off as a, a moment in your life actually becomes this, this ingrained lie and this ingrained set of emotions built around a lie that are leading you further and further away from the truth of who you are. And these footholds and these strongholds and these lies of the enemy, they start to shape you and they start to shape the relationships you have with other people and they start to shape your understanding of God. If my dad was an absent parent who I needed to strive to impress, then maybe God's an absent father who I have to strive to impress and earn his love and earn his grace. Does that sound familiar to anybody? But the truth is that we are chosen by God and loved by God and that Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins and for mine before you were even born. That God has done everything for your salvation and your fulfillment before you took one breath. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 talks about when you come to Jesus, you become a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. When you come to Jesus, when you give your life to him, he starts to write a new story in you and over you. It doesn't change the past. The past has still happened, but it frees us from the power of the past and allows us to step into a new future. We become people who are defined by Jesus' past, not our own past. Does that make sense? So let me bring this into land. Two things that I think are really helpful. The first thing is you gotta be honest. You gotta be honest. My mom, um, she, just, she, she hates conflict. She avoids conflict at all costs. And I'll phone her up and I'll chat to her and say, how are you today? I'm walking around with a bucket of sand. 
Like, you what? She goes, talks about, you know, an ostrich sticks its head in, in the sand to hide and avoid scary things. If something's going on that she wants to avoid, she talks about walking around with her bucket of sand, that as soon as it rises up, she just sticks her head in. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You, you have to be honest. The worst thing is pretending. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to say I'm not okay. There's a lie of the enemy that says everybody in church is great and has got it all together and is doing really well. And, and we walk in and, you, and, and we, 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 we accelerate it by saying, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Yeah, I'm great. Nobody actually has an honest conversation. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to admit you're not okay. But it's not okay to linger there. It's not okay to say I'm not okay and this is my reality and this is who I am from now and for eternity. Psalm 137 that we read at the start, and it's a psalm that's going to throw up loads of questions for you. It is hands down, without doubt, the darkest few verses in the Bible. Where the psalmist writes, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Surely if there was parts of the Bible you were going to cut out and throw out, would it not be that? Is it okay to pray a prayer like that? I'm going to say yes, it is. Because it's in the Bible. It's honest. That's how the psalmist feels after watching his family being destroyed and his city being destroyed, his temple being destroyed, being carried off into exile, having to live as a refugee and then being mocked and slagged off by the people around him in this new country, being abused by the people around him in this new country. And he just in this overwhelming outcry of emotion just cries out to God and says, God, just, just end this, people, end this. Is it okay to pray this prayer? Yes, it's okay to be honest with God. And yes, it's okay to be emotional with God. Is God going to answer this prayer? No, he's not. Not the way the psalmist prays it. It's not who God is. Kill babies by dashing them off rocks. God's not going to answer that prayer. Of course he's not. It's not who he is. So why do you pray a prayer like that? Because it's how you feel. And God doesn't just want your intellect. He wants your heart. He doesn't just want your rational thought. He wants your emotions. He wants both those things. Not one or the other. Not one more than the other. He wants all of you. And there's moments where you feel like you just wish everybody else would get lost. It's okay to tell God that. But doesn't God already know how I feel if he knows everything and is everywhere all of the time? Yes. But he wants you to sit still long enough to become aware of your emotions, 
and to become aware of how you feel and to find a way to put words around how you feel. And sometimes you need to speak those words out to a friend to, to help to figure it out. And sometimes you need to speak to your GP. And sometimes you need to go for counseling to figure out exactly what's going on. But he wants you to sit still long enough so you can figure out what is going on under the surface of your life. These emotions are here, but they're warning lights for things that are going on deeper down. He wants you to figure those things out and to speak them out loud to him. Because when you do that, something happens. And this is, where, this is the final thing I'm going to say tonight. In Lamentations chapter 3, if you've got a Bible, just flick to it with me, will you? It's kind of after Jeremiah. It's not a book we go to very often. But it's this beautiful book. It's this last point's entitled, Knowing the Truth About You and God. In Lamentations chapter 3, the, the, the writer, he's brokenhearted by what has happened to Jerusalem. He's brokenhearted by what's happened to Judea. To Judah, sorry. And he's weeping and he's grieving and he's pouring out all of his emotion to God. And it's really poetic the way he does it. But chapter three is 20 verses of just depressing, tear-filled, honest, no holds barred language as the psalmist sits still and pays attention to what's going on inside him and articulates that out loud. And after 20 verses of this, look at verse 21. After 20 verses of sitting in prayer with his pain and his grief and putting words around it, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. As you pay attention to what is going on under the surface of your life as you find a way to put words around it, as you bring it to God, honestly bring it to God. You discover a God who is perfect love and a God who loves you perfectly and a God who is committed to your flourishing and your wholeness and your humanity and your eternity. That's what we see in the incarnation. That's what we see in the crucifixion. That's what we see in the resurrection. And as you sit still and as you bring these things to God, you discover a God who has perfect love, who is committed to your wholeness and your well-being, who starts to put you back together. And like I said before, sometimes you need help from friends. Sometimes you need to speak to your GP. Sometimes you need to go for counseling. All these are good things. But ultimately, it is about allowing the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are in Jesus to begin to shape our reality at the deepest level. 
And if God's word is shaping your heart, if God's word is shaping your rational thought, if God's word is shaping who you are, your emotions over time begin to flow from that place. Let me read Jesus' words in John chapter eight. This is Jesus talking to the Jews who had believed him. In verse 31, Jesus says, if you hold to my teaching, if you hold to my truth, if you hold to my word, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So much of our wrestle in life comes from misunderstanding who we are. and comes from misunderstanding who God is. And I'm not saying it fixes everything, but as Christians, what Jesus is saying is that we need to be a people who allow God's word to shape both our internal and our external reality. And on an internal level, you are God's treasured possession. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. You are perfectly loved by God. He has chosen you from before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to pay the price for your, your, your deepest mistakes and regrets. And he sent his spirit to bring you on a journey of sanctification to allow the truth of who he says you are in his word to become your reality. 